Hi everyone and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is October 17th, 2017. It wasn't but five months ago that my guest, Chris Blackerby from NASA was on the show. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks so much, Tim. It's great to be back. You've had a transition. Caroline Kennedy is no longer in the embassy as our ambassador. We have a new ambassador, William Haggerty, who is now in position. You were the NASA representative for five years at the embassy. And in fact, you received a scholarship to join NASA right out of college. You've been there for 15 or 16 years, right? Yeah, I actually got a fellowship out of graduate school uh, and I was with NASA for 15 years, 10 of which were in Washington, DC. And the last five, I was the NASA attache how in Japan. How incredible. You know, in, on our show, Tokyo on Fire, we like to talk about upcoming hot political issues and an issue like, you know, the ones that you're working on are, are really topical to us. So, so I want to get right into the heart of the matter, if you don't mind. Let's talk about those aliens. Yeah, Tim, you know I can't talk to you about that here. <laughs> Maybe off camera later. Is that okay? Yeah. You must get this all the time. You're at NASA. NASA is doing all of this wonderful stuff there at the, the pinnacle of, of technology and space development and you must get peppered with these kind of um, serious questions all the time. I did, well, when I was at NASA, as you mentioned, I've transitioned outside of NASA, but yes, when I was there, we'd get the questions. Every single presentation I did, mm -hmm. the question of aliens came up, and of course, we don't know. We don't have any evidence of it, but the universe is huge. It'd be hard to believe that, that there's not something else out right. there. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a scary thought to think um, maybe if we're not, yeah, well, that's what we, we've talked about, right? It's a, there, there's two possibilities. Either, either we're alone in this universe or we're not, and, and either, either option is equally scary. Right. Well, <laughs> it's pretty scary sitting here with you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show again. So you're in a new gig now. You are Astroscale. It's a KK that was set up a couple of years ago in Singapore. It's now a KK here in Japan. It's, it's basically a startup in a new technology in a new field, isn't it? Yeah, so you know, it's a really exciting time in space overall. So when I was with NASA, I did government work for 15 years, right, working on space policy and, and space development, but I always kept aware of what was going on on the industry side. Mm -hmm. And we all know the big players, you know, the Lockheed Martins and Boeings and, and Airbus, all the big industry players in Japan, MHI, IHI, Melco. But what's happening now is a real, uh, uh, incredible time of startups in space. And so, again, you've heard of the big ones in the U.S. You've heard of SpaceX, or you've heard of Blue Origin, a Jeff Bezos company, or, or, or Virgin Galactic. But there's a, there's, a, there's a group in Japan that's happening now, too, all doing different stuff. And so the company that I'm now uh, COO of, Astroscale, uh, started in Singapore, as you mentioned. Two years ago, we opened an office in Japan. Our mission is to uh, clean up space debris and maintain a sustainable orbital environment. Okay. And why is that important? I mean, I've seen uh, maps and it, it's kind of disconcerting because they qualify space debris as a, as a dot, so the world is kind of surrounded by these dots. Some of them are small and some of them are large, but it, it looks really uh, crowded out there. It is crowded. And those maps are a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's not a totally accurate because as you say, it looks like a little dot, so it looks like we're totally encompassed in space trash. And that's not so much the case, but it is, growing, the amount of debris that's up there now, hundreds of thousands of pieces of space debris uh, between one centimeter and all the way up to rocket bodies. Uh, in, in terms of the, the debris we can really measure that can do real damage 10 centimeters mm -hmm. and greater, uh, you know, tens of thousands of pieces of space debris. So 
The orbital environment is getting more and more congested, and the more pieces of debris that are up there, the more possibility is that there's an accident that causes a, a, a devastation to a satellite or to something like the space station. I guess there's no international convention about if you're going to put it up there, it's your responsibility to bring it down. Sometimes they put it up there, and it'll come down, but give it 100 years or so, right? So there's a generally accepted practice that if you're going to launch something, it needs to come down within 25 years. Okay. That's the general idea. And that's people now becoming more responsible in space. When we first started, they didn't really think about it. But now that it's becoming so congested, people are more responsible. Um, but that doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, an accident happens and there's, there's debris that's stuck in space for tens or hundreds of years potentially. Uh, and there's no real enforcement mechanism. Right. So there's UN bodies that focus on this, or there's intergovernmental agencies, uh, you know, groups that focus on this, where different space agencies are a part. But there's no policeman of the skies that's up there, you know, pulling people over for leaving too much debris <laughs> in, in an orbital plane. So uh, it makes it tough. The regulatory question is is a difficult one, and that's one of the few, one of the several that we're working on as a as a company. Do we have the ability to actually look up and map out and see almost all of the, the significant pieces that are there, or maybe even the insignificant pieces? We, we can. We can see okay. a lot of them. And there's, you know, these are, these are ground-based antenna that are looking up, and there's companies and there's government agencies that are looking up. Japan doing it as well as the U.S., as well as Europe. Uh, I was just in Australia for a conference. They have a, a group that's looking up and tracking it. So there's a variety of places that are tracking it. Um, but we first of all, can't get a totally comprehensive picture. And in fact, our company, one of the first missions that we're going to be launching later this year is going to be tracking micro debris, sub-millimeter sub debris in space. And we're going to be launching wow. a, a mission that's going to track that in low Earth orbit to try to get us a, an in-situ map mm -hmm. of, of what's happening up there. So as long as it's traveling in a constant speed that keeps it in orbit, it's probably okay. And as that orbit gets closer to the Earth, it just needs to be traveling faster to stay there. But eventually, is it accurate to say all of this stuff will fall to the Earth? Everything that's up there eventually will, well, at certain levels, it depends on where you are. Uh, you know, if we go to an extreme, the moon is not falling to the Earth, right? And that's orbiting the Earth, but it's not falling. Mm -hmm. But most of those satellites in low Earth orbit, they're constantly falling. But it takes a lot of time for it to come down right. on the order of, of hundreds of years, potentially, when you're looking at orbits in the 1,000 to 1,500 kilometer range. How do you get uh, from the big stuff to the small stuff? Why is there so much small stuff up there? A variety of reasons. So some of them are accidents in the past. There have been collisions between satellites uh, that have hit, and they've created lots of pieces of tiny... Dead debris. satellites, or this is just... Most recent example, one of the more recent examples, a more famous example was a active satellite hitting a dead uh, Russian satellite. And they collided and created thousands of pieces of space debris from very small, tiny pieces to much larger. And what else could be up there? It could be anything. It could be a little piece of, uh, of a satellite that fell off. Uh, it could be someone on the space station dropped something and there's a screw literally in orbit. The, it it's, it's, could be anything like that. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot of ways that that kind of small debris could be created. And, and, and that can still do damage. Even that small debris can do damage when it's traveling at 17,500 right. miles an hour, which is what it's doing in low Earth orbit. 
it can create significant damage. Well, isn't the space station also hit uh, on, on a regular basis by debris? It is. The space station has to move up and down to avoid any conjunction or accident. And, and there's pictures that astronauts have taken of small pieces that have hit the glass, uh, kind of like you're driving on the, on the road and a little pebble comes and hits your windshield and you can see the divot in the windshield. Mm -hmm. There are those pictures up there and then it has to be repaired. Uh, so debris is a constant problem. It's a problem for the several people that are in space on the space station, and it's a problem for the many active satellites that every country in the world has in orbit right now that basically helps us in our daily life without right. even knowing it. You mentioned this satellite that was uh, that crashed into a, a dead Soviet satellite. They knew that was going to happen. They they had preparation for it. Did it just kind of happen? In that case, it just happened. Usually, there's the on the ground warnings can be provided called conjunction analysis that can say, hey, we know that in a certain amount of time you are going to cross paths with another satellite. You better move it up or down. Mm -hmm. uh, so that can be done, but you know, human error, technical error, things happen, uh, and the more satellites that are in orbit the more possibility there is that there's going to be some kind of accident. And what we're at right now in terms of space development, we're on the cusp of an incredible jump in terms of numbers of satellites that are going to be launched. Because it's not just governments that are doing it. It's not just governments anymore. And it's not just big companies anymore. Uh, there's been a democratization of mm -hmm. space, basically. So universities and small companies and so many are being able to launch satellites that used to be you know, the size of this room, huge. Right. Uh, and now there can be these things called CubeSats, which are, can fit in my hand. And so all of these satellites are up in orbit, and that's great because it's providing us information on weather, on communications, uh, on, uh, you know, for security purposes. There's so many uses of satellites. Literally, every single day, we rely on satellites to right. talk to our family or friends, to get what the weather is, to understand directions, to get somewhere. All of that is based on satellites. And so there's lots of companies now that are able to do satellite launches for a much cheaper price than they used to. They're able to build satellites that are smaller and less expensive. So there's a lot more that are being built. Subsequently, a lot more are gonna be launched. And as a consequence of that, the projection is the, the number of um, inert space objects is grow. just gonna... It will grow. Right. I mean, it's just, it, 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 just, it just stands to reason. As you go out from that and as you create more uh, satellites that are providing positive good, some of those satellites are going to fail. Right. Uh, and so what we think is that some of these major, they're called constellations, they're going to be called mega constellations of satellites. There's companies that are planning to launch 500, 1,000, 1,500 satellites in the next five or 10 years that will provide, in some cases, wireless communication globally. So you could be in the middle of Africa, you could be in a, an urban canyon in Tokyo, you'll have a wireless capability. That's what this company, one company called OneWeb, is trying to do. So they're going to be launching these hundreds of satellites. Estimates are maybe 5 to 10% will fail before the okay. end of their lifetime. They need a way to, to come down. They need to be removed as soon as possible to remove that potential danger to the constellation. And so that's what we like to help with. In that kind of a, um, a business model, I understand that they're having a service, they're selling a service, they're generating a revenue. What's the deal with your company? I mean, who is benefiting from you? Um, wh where's the revenue model? So uh, in terms of the benefit, of course, I mean, I know this isn't really along the business line, but we're all benefiting. Whenever sure. we can remove a piece of debris from orbit, whenever we can make sure that an additional piece of debris is not added to orbit, we're all benefiting. Mm -hmm. Our children, generations are benefiting by cleaning up that environment. 
now on the more near-term business case, we think that there is the benefit for that company in that they remove that potential risk from orbit. Any time that there is something in space that is uncontrolled and is not being utilized, that's a risk to everybody else in space. And so if we can provide that service, it's almost an, an insurance and, and an assurance that your orbit will remain sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so if we can do that, that's great. I mean, if, if, if somebody is, uh, if you're driving on a highway and a car breaks down and it sits on the side of the road, that is a potential hazard for any other car that drives by. So you'd want to remove that hazard from there. Now, that's kind of what we're doing. We want to go up there and help to remove that hazard from there. So our near-term model is we want to uh, provide an end-of-life service for these missions. Bring the satellites that are launched, bring them back down. So it's like an insurance. So you you would uh, appeal to the companies who are launching, and you'll say, we'll take care of it at end of life. You're going to pay us a couple of bucks for that, and that's part of our business model. Yeah, and 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 we're and we're talking to a variety of different paths, and we're talking to the regulators, the mm-hmm. international and the national regulators. We're talking to these companies that are launching these mega constellations. Right. We're talking to the insurance providers and saying, hey, look, work with us on this because we can make it so there's less of a risk. It's a risk-reward situation. Mm-hmm. And with the, the, the additional thousands of satellites that will be launched in the next few years, the risk is just going to continue to increase. So mm-hmm. there is a business case for this. There is a reason why these companies should want to do this. But there's also just a responsibility case. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, chemical companies might have dumped their waste into a river, right. and the logic was, oh, ocean's huge. Mm-hmm. You might have to worry about one river, right? Come on, it's not going to really do that much damage. Right. That kind of argument is ridiculous. A now, pollution right? of the commons. Yeah, that's, and that's what it was, right. and that's what's happening in, in space. And so the responsible companies that are launching these thousands of satellites recognize that, mm-hmm. and they want to be a part of the solution. And so... Um, they recognize that it's good for their business, it's good for sustaining their orbit, but they also recognize that it's just the right thing to do. But it's got to be expensive, too. Yeah, well, we're working on that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're hoping that we can... Because uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a big ocean, right? It's a big ocean, and getting up there is difficult. The launches are still expensive. Um, you know, so even with... The, there's a proliferation of inexpensive launches out there now. Before, you just have the big guys, the MHIs, right? right? Um, uh, but there's a lot of small launchers, on-demand launchers that are that are coming around, and so it's getting cheaper, but it's still expensive, and so uh, it's it's still a tough thing to do. But we're hoping that by scaling it up, by initial success that we're hoping to have on our first technology demonstration mission, which will be in a couple of years, we're hoping that by showing that we can scale up, we can provide the service to a lot of people. It can be cheaper, and and we can provo- we can become a standard. Where right. When I first heard of this venture, AstroScale. I thought it was um, somehow related to going up into space and vacuuming all of these the, the debris that's there. And that's not really the business model. It is, you're going to be launching, you have a liability, you have a responsibility, we're going to, we're going to help you cover that liability, right? So when you're talking about debris, you're going to look at two different things, and I mentioned this just a second ago, but you're going to be looking at not adding any debris to the current situation and removing the debris that's already there. So what we're focused on first is that first section, and then we're calling that end-of-life services. So when you launch a satellite, we're going to be up there to make sure it comes down and it doesn't impact anybody Manned, else. unmanned, it's, it's undecided yet. Unmanned. Okay. Unmanned. So launching satellites for, um, yeah, like a, a, any kind of Earth observation, communication satellite, we'll make sure that that comes down. That's the end-of-life service. The active debris removal is what, you've, is what you mentioned just right. now, going up there and finding it. 
and taking it down. Now, what's the technology to do that? There's it's a lot not of, even created yet, no, is it? It's not. Right. There's a lot of ideas out there, and they're pretty cool. So there's uh, there's harpoons, there's there's magnets, there's adhesives. In fact, when this company started, Astroscale, we were looking at using an adhesive. And the mm -hmm. first thought was we would use an adhesive and we would do the ADR, the active debris removal. Go up and find something, stick to it with an adhesive, and then bring that down. Mm -hmm. The business model was a little bit difficult there. The advent of these mega constellations provided us an alternate route for that. So that's why we've shifted a bit. But we haven't abandoned mm -hmm. the adhesive route. We haven't abandoned the active debris removal side. So we are doing a couple different tracks right now. One is we're working on the technology for this EOL service, right. end of life service. But we're also continuing to focus on what kind of ADR, active debris removal possibilities uh, might be out there. So we're researching that as well. Besides having you working in the company, what competitive advantage do they have here? Why Japan? Why, why now? Why in this geography? So the, the founder, the CEO, is a Japanese uh, citizen. Uh, he's based in Singapore, and so he started the company there in Singapore. But of course, he has this connection to Japan. And so opened an R&D office, which is here in Tokyo, uh, and opened that a couple years ago, two and a half years ago. And so Japan obviously has a proliferation of experts. Uh, there's a lot of smart people here. Japan is one of the top spacefaring countries in the world. So a lot of our staff is mixed into two bands. There's a lot of experienced engineers who used to work for space companies, right. and they've, they've retired and they want to do something exciting, so they've come over to provide their experience and their expertise. And then there's a lot of young graduates, 25 to 35. And want Japan, to be on something new. Yeah, something yeah. new and exciting and game-changing. I mean, yeah. when you're looking at something that's going to impact decades, centuries, that's the kind of work we're doing. And so these kids are coming in there and they're saying, I, I don't want to just go work for the big companies, I, I wanna go do something that's gonna really make a difference and that I can be part of a startup culture and that's what we, that's what we provide. Right. Astro Scales, Chris Blackerby, talking about aliens and space debris. Please continue to stay tuned. This is a really emerging topic. Hi everyone and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is October 17th, 2017. You know, with the Japanese economy going the way it is, the number of tourists coming in to look at Japan, to study Japan, to eat Japanese food, to have an experience here has actually skyrocketed. And it's much to the Prime Minister's benefit that this is happening. Today, I'm joined with my guest, Terry Lloyd. Terry, thank you very much for coming. Good afternoon. Terry Lloyd has been in Japan for a long time. Five beautiful daughters. You've run companies. You uh, worked very much with the American Chamber of Commerce. You're a known commodity here. And you've been focusing on Japan tourism and Japanese uh, leisure for the last, what, five or six years, right? Uh, right after the earthquake. That's when I got started, yes. Mm -hmm. How's it going? Yeah, good. As you can imagine, uh, when we got started in 2011, there were uh, roughly 7 million people uh, traveling to Japan as tourists. Uh, this year, maybe 27 million. That is incredible. I would say that amongst major uh, destinations, maybe Japan is the world's fastest growing and certainly largest uh, growing uh, destination in the last seven years. Uh -huh. A lot of people, I think, know you uh, from, from many years ago. You started Link Computer mm -hmm. when nobody really knew what the internet was and uh, you, you brought in computers. You started a company. You were on a rocket ship and you've always been at the forefront of, of things that are emerging and coming up, and you've noticed these things before anybody else has, and I think you've done the same thing with tourism. Uh, yeah, well, this time around it wasn't on purpose, though. I simply wanted to give something back to Japan, 
And then two years after we got started, uh, Abe got voted in and uh, suddenly the yen got cheap and uh, visas got easy to get. And then, uh, yeah, then I was on the rocket ship. Right. So, uh, maybe it looks like I'm a past master <laughs> at uh, predicting the future, but that's not the You've case. been very fortunate, though. Yes, yeah. um, but, you know, uh, for economic development, mm. tourism is the easiest dollar, isn't it? The tourist people come in. They buy things, they leave their money, and then they, they go back. They don't put too much of a strain on, on the social structure. But what's happened in Japan, particularly in Kyoto and Osaka, there's been an influx of, of foreigners that's crowded the streets and created something of a backlash. Well, it's inevitable. Uh, first of all, um, you're absolutely right that tourists are free money. Uh, actually, there was a statistic uh, a year or so ago that eight tourists equal one Japanese in terms of discretionary spending for a period of a whole year. So those tourists are only here for, what, six and a half days? Oh, average. it's all discretionary spending then, isn't uh, it? Well, it is Basically. as far as the tourists are concerned. Right. Uh, for a Japanese, maybe there's not a lot of money left over for discretionary spending other than a, a few beers and uh, and cigarettes, maybe. Right. But in any case, that, that one to eight is very interesting. And so um, if you take 27 million tourists, uh, that's equivalent to a three million person city with no cost of schools, no old age care, and almost no extra policing cost, and certainly no extra infrastructure cost like sewerage and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder that the government is on uh, a mission to get to 40 million. Um, whether they'll get to 40 million is another issue. Uh, and then, uh, so, so, you know, at, at the top levels, and of course Japan is a top-down country, um, the objective is replace factories, <clears throat> replace farming. What are you going to do it with? Well, tourism is easy because Japanese are polite. They, they like to help people generally, and uh, right. they make tourists feel good. Mm. But, um, uh, you know, uh, when you talk about the, uh, the backlash, um, uh, certainly I addressed this in my newsletter a few months ago, um, the backlash is, uh, uh, is several things. Uh, on one hand, it's inevitable um, in that uh, a lot of first-time people coming into Japan uh, want to go Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto. So Tokyo and Osaka, of course, are big enough to be able to handle the numbers, uh, but Kyoto is not. Right. So, uh, you know, it's always been a tourist destination, but uh, when you increase the number of tourists by 500%, of course, it's going to put some strain yeah, uh, on infrastructure and resources. You just don't have the time or the, the wherewithal to increase the, the width of the sidewalks, for example. There is that. Um, and then another thing is that, of course, the number one reason that people come to Japan is for food. Mm -hmm. Japan is the world's uh, culinary capital. Uh, in fact, there was an article, I think, just today, and I think The Guardian, I, I was reading that... Uh, uh, proposed that uh, probably the world's best restaurant is the number one uh, restaurant on Tabidok. Um, and the guy who was writing the article just said, well, it's a matter of course that Japan is number one uh, for food worldwide. I found mm -hmm. that very interesting from a newspaper like that. The largest number of Michelin stars. No, uh, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, um, you know, of course, uh, there's competition for resources. And whereas uh, everybody used to be able to buy uh, those resources at reasonable prices, if you suddenly got 27 million people coming in or, or an extra city of 3 million, mm -hmm. effectively, uh, they're going to compete for those resources. So it's only natural that uh, local people might feel bad. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's um, very localized. Um, and it's typically in secondary cities that are not set up to take lots of tourists. 
But what's happening now, which is interesting, is that um, the number of repeat tourists is increasing dramatically. Can't get enough. The first time is just not enough, uh, right? You know, so, some of these tourists are coming in like every month. Uh, if you think about it from uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong, uh, $500 and you can come in for a weekend. You can certainly eat your way through uh, another $500 and be saving money right. on what you'd be spending back home. Uh-huh. So anyway, these people come in um, and uh, what they're doing is that they're moving away from these centers and they're moving out into the countryside. So they're becoming a little bit more, not sophisticated, but a little bit more worldly about what Japan has to offer. They're not attracted to the bright lights and the soba in, in Tokyo or Ginza. They're, they're going out to feel a little bit more of what the Japan experience is. Well, they're not feeling intimidated by the language first okay. time, right? And so um, with the exception of China, where Chinese people on Chinese licenses can't drive in Japan, uh, certainly Taiwanese and Hong Kong people can. And so they get confident and then they start going out to the countryside. Anyway, the point of this is that right now the backlash is competition for resources in Kyoto and some other locations. But of course, as foreigners go out into the countryside where things are really traditional, you're going to have some kind of more interesting interactions. Right. Uh, right now, it's friendly. Uh, last weekend, I was up in Tono, which is in Iwate Ken. Sure. Uh, the, the so-called Furusato of Japan. Yes, Tono. They just established a sister city relationship with Chattanooga, Tennessee, maybe three weeks ago. Nobody told me that. How about that? I was yeah. too busy eating the great things that they have uh, and that we're serving up there. Uh, there are right. some wonderful restaurants. Well, that, that place qualifies as kind of in the sticks. It's pejorative. It, it's not meant to be pejorative. It's definitely in the right? sticks. Uh, it's up there. There's, it's yeah. a farming community, but it's yes. got a, a great tradition. Yes. And they are um, beginning to emerge, aren't they? Well, they're trying to uh, attract tourists. Now, you know, be careful of what you wish for, right. basically. And certainly other towns have found the same thing. So places like Hida Takayama, for example, which used to be, you know, little backwater places are now teeming with tourists, trying to escape the tourists in Kyoto. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I was up in Tono and uh, I was staying at this little B&B. And lo and behold, uh, originally I'm from New Zealand then immigrated to Australia. An Australian couple are staying there. And uh, as the guy told us, oh, actually, I've got a bunch of Australians staying up here. And I asked him why. And he said, well, they're all trying to avoid places like Kyoto. Isn't that amazing? So uh, anyway, so basically the backlash is having a, a benefit. And, uh, mm -hmm. But there will be some negatives. Um, I, I think, of course, the biggest negatives will be um, people feel discriminated against. Um, but, you know, it's not like you don't know before you come to Japan that there's going to be some of that, right? I mean, like uh, this restaurant that I was talking about, the number one restaurant that The Guardian had mentioned, they have a policy of not taking first-time customers. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you know, <laughs> you got to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, how do I not be a right. first-time customer? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the policy is uh, that you either have to be related to the owner or you need to be uh, introduced by somebody who's a long-term customer right. and taken in as a guest. Or, for example, you know, Having tattoos is, is a popular thing in, in the Western world. You come to Japan and you want to have a, a hot bath experience and everybody looks at you like uh, you've got a snake on your head. Yeah, well, uh, and again, I was up in Aomori uh, about three weeks ago. I'm sort of traveling around the country at the moment looking for interesting things to send my customers to. Mm -hmm. And then walks, uh, I'm sure he was a Yakuza. Fully decked out, great tattoo. I mean, it was wonderful to look at it, although I tried not to stare too much, you know, just in case I got into trouble. But 
Anyway, he walked nonchalantly into the bath and everyone was cool. Okay. So obviously, you know, I think, you know, that tattoo thing, I think that's the big city sophistication, mm. you know, overdoing it basically. Okay. So um, anyway, uh, the question being, you know, the backlash and that sort of thing, um, certainly it's already started happening. Uh, as I mentioned in my Terry's take, uh, there was that incident where the train conductor was apologizing to local commuters for all the tourists. You know, that's a bit rich. Right. And uh, certainly when I'm on the Shinkansen, uh, as you may know, the JR has had a 10% increase in their profit, almost 100% due to uh, foreign tourists buying their JR rail passes. Been a fantastic thing for But them. they get that also at a discount, don't they? Well, they get it at a discount. The thing is, they're only allowed on one type of train, which is the is not the Nozomi, right? It's the slow trains. Mm-hmm. So if you're a local okay. and you want to get off at your local stop, you may not be able to get a seat on that train. And, there, and there's quite a bit of complaining about that. How about that? Yeah. The other interesting thing about the influx of, of tourists is other industries are beginning to benefit from that too. Airbnb, Uber, a lot of these um, other upstarts that are that are coming up to facilitate that uh, there's there's a huge need. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Airbnb is an interesting one. Um, it, it has pluses and minuses. Uh, on the plus side, it's putting money into local pockets. And a lot of these uh, people out in the countryside, they have no other way to make money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's the Abe government's intention. Partly it's an excuse, you know, oh, we don't have enough hotel rooms in Tokyo for the 2020 Olympics. And that's true. Up some space. Well, it's kind of true. I mean, they could just park some ocean liners out in the harbor, mm-hmm. actually. So, you know, there's some political maneuverings going on behind the scene, I think. But anyway, it does put money into local pockets. And if it puts money in local pockets, it keeps young people in, in the countryside. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think there is a method behind madness. The only thing is, uh, Airbnb, you're inviting a stranger into your house. And you don't know if they're an axe murderer or not. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as I know, there haven't been any slayings in Japan by Airbnb customers. But certainly there have been a couple of fatal accidents. And I, no doubt there have been even suicides. I, I mean, I don't know that part, but I remember uh, last year uh, there was a, a Chinese girl who was found uh, on the, in the in bay, Hokkaido. Uh, yeah, that's right. On the first floor, she'd fallen off a uh, 12-story 12, 12 uh, uh, balcony. They couldn't find the mother because the mother was out shopping and they didn't live there. Mm -hmm. So everyone was freaked out. You know, I mean, that's you're not supposed to have people that you don't know about in your building. But that's going to happen with Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Um, If an axe murderer does make it to Japan and uh, unfortunately somebody's the victim of that, um, you can imagine there's going to be a huge uh, backlash very quickly. Well, that's the other thing about tourism. It's, it's a fickle economy, isn't it? You yes. really can't depend too much on it. When people love you, they'll come. And just the slightest thing that turns them off, they go someplace else. Well, exactly. And uh, you've got the situation at the moment where it can be politically induced. So the Chinese are saying to their own people, you better not be going to South Korea. Right. Right. Because of the, um, the uh, armed uh, exercises against North Korea. Mm-hmm. So where else are they going to go? Well, they're kind of sick of Hong Kong. So generally speaking, they tend to come here or, or to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. This is the first time I've heard somebody say something about a cruiser or a, a, an ocean liner just parked outside of Tokyo. Mm. And what a great idea. Is, this, is there actually some validity to that? Uh, it's been done before. Uh, I, I don't have uh, specifics. Um, 
but it has been done before. Um, you can have, you know, 5,000 rooms sure. in an ocean liner. And so it doesn't take many of them to be able to make up the, uh, you know, the, uh, the deficit, basically. And one of the aspects of the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo is mm. it's an Olympics that's formed on the water. So a large part of the Tokyo Bay is being used as uh, a part of the, I mean, that's where the, the athletes will be staying and that's where a lot of the competition is being held. Uh, that's right. Some of the swimming is uh, happening there as well, I understand. I understand they do the yeah. swimming in the water yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just kidding. Think there's an area in Oliva where they. Because <laughs> I watch it on the news, they're having problem, a little bit of a problem with, with the water, water quality. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that in the I news just last night. That one out. You know, you got the whole harbour is kind of a little bit dubious, and here they are trying to do a swimming event there. And not a great idea. Yeah. Actually, I think it was beach volleyball or something. No, I think it was a it was a a triathlon or oh, something like that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And then yeah. they put the cameras underwater and there's all the yeah, the yeah. straws and the That's cans right. and stuff yeah, like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what's a few <clears throat> ships amongst uh, you know a few straws? Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> <laughs> Terry Lloyd with Japan Travel. Please stay tuned. Also, register for Terry's newsletter. It is called Terry's Take. It's full of all sorts of relevant, up to date information. Thank you very much, Terry. Please stay tuned. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is October 17th, 2017. There are five days left actively of politicking to go before the election for this year. Michael? It's coming down right to the wire. We're going to have this loaded up a day or so later, and so more developments will have come, but right now, it, it's really on fire out there. It really is, and it is, it is somewhat rare in the Japanese political world for an epical change to occur and splayed out right in front of you. I mean, we have seen the destruction of political parties, the emergence of political parties, part, political parties that have sprung like mushrooms without any funding and who are launching, you know, 60 new candidates. It's an, it's an amazing process that we're, we've been able to see. And, okay, credit to Mr. Abe to just th throwing everything into the winds. What a brilliant move. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he think, he must have thought this was brilliant. And the, it has spawned a Unintended whole, consequences. It has spawned a whole set of movements that perhaps there was a certain, always a certain momentum toward them. This concept that Japan should have really a, a, a pair of clearly defined ideological parties mm -hmm. that where you have the choice. Yeah, where you have conservatives versus liberals or left versus right or whatever it is that you that, that there there be some kind of uh, of binomial and some glue that holds democracy yeah, some together. kind of binary thing right. like, yeah, that yeah that, that that you could have alternation and you would have a clear choice. Well, that seems to be the way it's working out. It's not binary. It's, there's a whole bunch of parties working it out, but nevertheless, you're getting down to some really ideological parties that have some, some real uh, clout that just didn't exist a few, a few weeks ago. Right, right. Let's talk about the Prime Minister's Party, the Liberal Democratic Party. It looks like it's going to scoop a lot of candidates. Well, it's going to seemingly get at least 300 seats. Uh, that's, that's if current trends continue. But the trends have been all over the Every place. Every day. It's, it, you see, the, you see the, the, the trend polls that come out on a daily basis. They're, they're, I don't know if some of the, the media 
organizations are going to be dropping out of this. But those who are trying to keep up with what's going on are finding that voters are really, really shifting their, their votes really rapidly. We mm -hmm. had the rapid rise of the Hope Party just a few weeks ago, and it looking like it had some kind of momentum. And then it hit a brick wall when Koike-san decided not to run and told everyone that she was not going to run. At that point, the momentum flo flowed immediately into the remnant party of the DP, the, the CDPJ, the Constitutional Democratic Party of Japan, which is now, if, if we are to trust Fuji Television's poll, their most recent one, is now in the number two position in terms of voters who support it. Uh, now, Fuji Sankei polls always have some operational issues that, that make them kind of iffy, but nevertheless, it seems to have emerged as at least for the proportional vote, because you have the two ballots, in the proportional vote, it's going to do very, very well. Right. How did Koike's Hope Party crater as badly as it did? Well, it's just that it, it was a vehicle for her. It, the whole idea was, why not have a woman prime minister Let's let's do something with this. Mm -hmm. And she was because she has this personal attractiveness that people assumed would be able to keep a party going. A lot of elements that you know, let's call them opportunistic folks, okay, uh, latched on to her. But I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but she never claimed that she's running for prime minister. She's solid as governor of Tokyo. She never said she was going to throw her hat into the ring, even though she was invited to. And if you don't, you're going to lose all these votes. And she stuck to her position. She's still the governor. She's not running as a candidate. Yeah, but she's, she's wounding herself just by being around. Right now, today, she's in Kyushu, uh, trying to drum up some kind of interest for her candidates. But since she was the message, she's the message of change, that she cannot be the prime minister since she will not be in the diet. It's a requirement. Right, it's a constitutional requirement that they must be diet members. Uh, didn't bother me. I mean, I don't have the right to vote, but from a political perspective, she was kind of a shining light in a sea of of just blips. Yeah, but the thing is that if she's not going to be their candidate, who is? And if that's not determined, and it will be some lesser person who doesn't have the attractiveness, what's the point of giving them your vote? Mm -hmm. It's. It's just it's, a, it's, it's, a, a, it's just a lifeboat for remnants of the Democratic Party and a few other parties well, it became, here and there. It became that. But, I mean, she was an, maybe a, a voice of opposition, a challenge to the Abe administration. I mean, a lot of people just won't vote for Abe because he's Abe, because they're sick and tired of it. And every time he wins an election, he says, now I have a mandate and all of those things that I did. I, I receive your endorsement. Yeah, but when he, when he says, I have a mandate, it's a mandate of 17 million votes okay. uh, out of a possible right. 100 million, mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which is, okay, that the electoral system is engineered that way, that you get a landslide victory out of 17%. Uh, and isn't the, the LDP kind of engineered to be, always be the winner? Oh yeah, that's, all, that's always there as well. But nevertheless, the, 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 the system that exists he, to say that he has a mandate, he doesn't even, if you, if you were to compare the number of votes the LDP gets, it's not even half as many people who 
as as the n- people who don't show up. Sure, right. Sixty percent. Yeah, I mean the undecided. The undecided is a sixty percent, and forty three percent or forty seven percent of the people don't show up at right. all. You know, if, if you could get some of those people into the the, the uh, voting booth, then you can actually make a huge change because the the actual support for the LDP is really right. small. And that's where the CDPJ looks like it's making its move. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not uh, cannibalizing from other existing parties their votes. It seems to have pulled from out of the undecideds a large number of people who have, face it, have had no one to vote for mm-hmm. for a very, very long time. And it's also drawing the interest of groups and individuals you would never associate with the liberal side of the political spectrum. In particular, I mean, we had this stunning example today of uh, Ishihara Shintaro, the infamous right-wing, anti-Chinese, uh, hardcore authoritarian governor, former governor of Tokyo, coming out and saying, it's like Sekigahara out there, nothing but cowards and traitors. The only real man out there is Edano Yukio of the CDPJ. That's the only real guy. And then that is just outrageous. It's just, how can, does, isn't, there, isn't he the enemy? Mm-hmm. He's the left-wing China hugger, isn't he? Uh, it, it's attracted uh, Ishihara's attention. We have Kobayashi Yoshinori, the infamous right-wing manga artist, at least that's the way he's been portrayed for the last decade in uh, Western analyses. He's campaigning with Tsujimoto Kiyomi, who is old socialist party in Osaka. He's campaigning for her Mm -hmm. and for the CDPJ. They're attracting all kinds of people who are interested in, yes, anti-Abeism. Right, right. But it's an anti-Abeism of principle. They call themselves the Constitutional Democratic Mm -hmm. Party because their basic sales pitch is, okay, we're not, we don't have a lot of, of policies all dressed up. We don't have a whole bunch of ideas uh, ba- on how to give money out, but we were, whatever we do, we'll do it according to mm-hmm. the law. Right. And that's where Mr. Abe is weak. He's got the Moritomo Gakuen scandal. He, he's got the, uh, the Kake Gakuen scandal. He, he played fast and loose with the Constitution in terms of the collective security legislation. He has people out there who don't like the way he does things. Maybe the, the outcomes are, are, are really mild, mm-hmm. but they don't like it, that he bends or breaks the Constitution to get where and he is. And it really only takes that little, that little sliver, doesn't it? I mean, for voters to be turned off or to, to walk across the aisle and, and, and vote you know, to, to a, a different party. It's really, they're, not, they're very fickle. In, term, in terms of, well, also the, the, the policy choices are relatively limited. Right. You really, if you look at, at what the Hope Party's economic policies uh, and also the LDPs, they're virtually the same. There's not much that the CDPJ could do differently. And even communists, if you ask them, you know, okay, what's the, what's the socialist paradise that you're going to create? It doesn't look tremendously different from what the LDP right. wants to, right. to make. So the, the actual choices are actually in a very narrow band. And it's, at that point, it becomes valence issues, primarily the nuclear issue, we're for, we're for immediate shutting down of all nuclear power plants versus a slow phase out mm-hmm. versus we have to have them as a base power. Those, those are there, but those don't inspire people. That's right. And the thing is, it's, it's only in 2009, just you know, a few years back, 
that we had nearly 70% of the electorate show up. It was 69 point something that showed up in 2009 for that exciting election. If you can get some excitement, inject some incitement into this process, there are tens of millions of votes out there that have just been rotting yeah. during, since 2012. If you can get them in there, you change the entire, right. the entire framework on the proportional side. On the district side, I think it's a lock for the LDP. Yeah. They've, they've really, there are too many candidates running, opposition candidates running against each other that'll knock each other out, leaving the LDP in power. Well, from a personal perspective, I really was hoping for Koike's party, the party of hope, because I, it, it did interject a, a freshness and a, a new idea, and it created a, really a, a kind of new, a new tomorrow for a lot of people. And I'm just so disappointed that it just, it began to be something for everybody, except for you guys, right? Mm -hmm. And as, as a consequence, it began to lose that momentum, but the momentum was picked up by yet a new party. Yeah, it, uh, I'm on record as, as not being in favor of Koike's style of politics. I have an article out in, in Newsweek Japan this week where I, uh, perhaps unwisely uh, say that Stalin would be very impressed by the way she handles her personnel issues. Uh, that's probably not gonna do so, too well with her. I might not get an invite, invitation anytime soon. <laughs> but it's, because uh, it, she's, she's rough people on people. People love you for other reasons. Yeah, oh, she's rough on people in a way. And, and uh, one of the persons who, who highlighted uh, Ishihara's uh, little comment saying that I, 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 the only person who's a man here is, is Idano Yukio, is a hope candidate. Uh -huh. And he says, I know what he's saying. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I think uh, you need an iron-fisted uh, individual if you're going to be playing in this game. It's, no, I disagree, and because the game is two parts. To be prime minister, sure, you need someone who's able to make decisions and make the, make the tough decisions and say yes and no versus mm -hmm. people. But in the Japanese parliamentary system, you have to be both the, the PM and the head of your party in the diet. And being the head of the party, the president of, what, let's say, the LDP or the leader uh, of, of the Hope Party, whatever, you have to have a softness, a forgivingness. You have to be able to go out and listen to what other members of your party <clears throat> are saying and create a consensus. And that she is absolutely unable to do. Mm -hmm. so, Yes, you, you need the iron lady, or I call her the iron butterfly, right. but you also need that ability to lead within a party, and there she completely failed. But those are, those are comparing two different things. The but it's the same job. If you're PM, you must do both. That's the parliamentary system. You don't get to choose. No, she's, but she's not PM. She is a governor, and she doesn't have to respond to a cabinet. But if you're going to have a party at all, it's going, it is for the purpose of taking power. But the prime minister must resign as a faction head when he becomes prime minister. Oh, if he's a faction head, he, and then Mr. Abe has resigned from his faction. But I'm talking about the presidency of the LDP, which you, we both know he, he is. Right. He's the president. And so, he, he, yes, it's, it's not quite as, as touchy-feely as the faction relationship, but still, as the leader of the LDP, he has to he has to have a soft touch sometimes, mm -hmm. and he has. He's let uh, he, he's let the jostling happen, and only once did he put down his fist when he had his own faction leader Hosoda, uh, he, when he put him in the, in one of the Yonyaka positions, and that didn't mm -hmm. go so well, and so he pulled him out. Right. Uh, 
this is a situation where if, if you want to be serious in politics, you have to have a candidate who can be prime minister. That's what Edano represents for the CDBJ. That's what Mr. Abe represents for his party. Mm -hmm. And when this is all done, said and done, they're going to, when they have the extra session, each party is going to vote for its own party leader for a prime minister. Mm -hmm. and you have to have that. Hope doesn't have a hope. Yeah. It doesn't have the, the lady in, in charge. Well, so, there, was a, there was a temptation for her actually to throw her hat in, right? No, there's a, of course. And it could have been done so easily. All they had to do was put her a number one on their proportional list. I'm glad she didn't. I, I think it's disastrous and for for her party. But since I'm not, since I see them as largely a product either of people who didn't have a hope or right. were, were just rank opportunists, for the most part. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a long haul. I mean, just let's set up the party first of all. I mean, whoever they have. September the 29th, right? Right. You know, September the 28th. We're, we're talking about just a few weeks ago, and it's already gone from. Uh, you know, a, a Mack truck that is flying through a brick wall, and to, and then suddenly it falls yeah. off a cliff. Yeah, it, it's it's it, it, what what are the metaphors that you can use? Well, our next our next viewing of of Tokyo on Fire is in two weeks, so we have a lot to talk about it at that point in time. But between now and then, there are going to be an awful lot of changes and an awful lot of Ronin milling through town. There's going to be a lot that's uh, once once the election's only going to be the beginning of the story. It's going to get really hot after that, isn't it's it? It's going to get hot after that. The the hope party, I don't know if it'll last even a day after the election is over because they are so resentful for the uh, regarding this decision mm -hmm. that the ostensible leader did. Now they're holding hands right now, but the moment the, that 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 8 bell rings on Sunday, they're going to all let go and start walking their separate ways. It's going to get really interesting really fast. What an exciting time in Japanese politics. We love delving into this. Please continue to join us. The fat lady hasn't sung yet.